Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. For Friday, September 25th, we'll be talking to one of the members of the Dundas family that say that maybe we've got the story about Henry Dundas all wrong. Should we rename Dundas Street? We'll also be talking about the 500 greatest albums of all time list. It got an update courtesy of Rolling Stone this week. Alan Cross will break that down with us from the ongoing history of new music and the Serb. It ends on Saturday. So the Liberals have introduced legislation, which changes the EI system. Here to talk about it, David McDonald. He's senior economist for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, last we spoke, you were a little bit concerned about some people being left out when the uh, CERB uh, has to switch over to EI. Can you run through the changes to EI that were introduced yesterday? It's changing by the hour. Um, the changes that were introduced yesterday that create a new floor uh, on EI, well, raises the floor on EI from $400 a week to $500 a week, and also changes the flat benefit amount for the new one of these new benefits called the CRB, which is for uh, self-employed and gig workers, again, increasing it from $400 a week to $500 a week. Those changes uh, will impact 2 million Canadians on CERB, uh, making them in essence, not in essence, not making them worse off. So they'd be getting the same five hundred dollars a week that they're getting presently on CERB. Now, what that means is that eighty percent of the people um, moving off of CERB onto one of these new programs will be at the same level, five hundred dollars a week, or slightly better off in some cases uh, if they're receiving EI. There is still twenty percent of people that will be worse off after this transition, uh, but this is much better than the situation as it stood about twelve hours ago. Okay, well, who are those people that are going to be worse off? Well, there's two big groups. The first is people who will switch to EI's Working While on Claim program. Um, What this allows you to do is receive EI while you are working. However, the EI benefit gets clawed back based on how much you're making. In the CERB, there was no clawback. As long as you made under $1,000 a month, um, you would receive uh, the full value of the CERB. Uh, that's not going to be the case uh, with EI's working well on claim. And so there will be some people uh, who will see that EI clawback and therefore won't get the $500 a week floor, but will get somewhat less than that. The other I, group of people... Yep. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go uh, ahead with that and then I'll ask my question. Sure. The other group of people is um, uh, there's a fair, uh, 400,000 low-wage part-time workers that lost work during the pandemic, but then got their previous part-time hours back. So they're working the same as they were prior to the pandemic, but they were always making under $1,000 a month. Um, they were they were eligible for CERB. However, once CERB ends, uh, they won't be eligible for any of the programs. Likely EI would be the program that they might apply to if they lost their jobs. But just because you're working part-time uh, at low wages, EI doesn't support you. But CERB did under, under the circumstances and how it was built. I know that EI weekly pay, uh, payments are going to match the CERB, but you're going to see less in your account. They're going to tax it now. Is that a better strategy? Yeah, that's the other big change here is that we're going to is that we're going to move to all these programs will be taxed. Uh, EI, well, I mean everything CERB is also taxed, but the but it wasn't withdrawn at source, and so you saw that full five hundred dollars. Well, you would have seen the full thousand uh, dollar a month if you applied through uh, ESDC, or the the full two thousand uh, dollars a month if you'd applied through uh, through CRA. Now, as we move to any of these new benefits, whether it's EI, whether it's new Canada recovery programs, it doesn't matter. Uh, taxes will be withdrawn at source, so you'll you'll be seeing less than five hundred dollars uh, a month. Sorry, a week uh, coming in. Uh, the upside to that is that you're not going to get a surprise tax bill 
come March. Uh, I, I suspect that a lot of people who are receiving the CERB didn't realize that they should probably put away, say, 20 percent of what they are receiving on the CERB uh, because they'll owe it back in taxes likely in March. So it's a bit of a trade off either way. I mean, both have their pluses and minuses, um, but people should be um, should understand that, that they will receive less than that five hundred dollars a week because their taxes are now being withdrawn on either on EI or any of these other new Canada recovery programs. Do you still have to be actively looking for a job in order to keep getting EI payments? Yes. Okay. And this will last for, I believe, is it 26 weeks? Yes. And so is, there's there's some extensions too. I mean, I was looking more just at the this, this initial transition. Uh, the only exception to the, to the um, looking for work provision on EI is if you cannot work due to childcare issues. So your school closed or your childcare closed, and now you've got to be home to take care of the kids. Um, there's about uh, you know 180,000 people in that circumstance. They're, they aren't EI eligible because you can't quit and get EI, but these folks did probably quit or cut back their hours to take care of kids. Um, and the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit, the CRCB, which is one of these new programs that will come into play, um, folks will likely be eligible for that. Um, and so that's one way that you can that you can quit or not look for work, but still receive support through one of these programs. Okay, last time we spoke, you told us about transitioning over and how it's very important to know that how you applied for CERB will affect if you automatically get those uh, new benefits. Can you just run through that in 30 seconds or less, and then I'll uh, let you enjoy your afternoon? This still applies. Um, And so if you applied through, uh, if you got CERB through the CRA, which is you're getting it in $2,000 chunks, and you're EI eligible, you know, you're working before the pandemic in a regular job, you are not going to be transitioned over to the EI system. You're going to have to go to the EI website and apply. And so uh, that should be open to folks, I think, starting next week. Uh, and so, so if, if you're getting that $2,000 a month, uh, know that you will have to go and yourself apply for EI. No one's going to do that for you. But if you're receiving it in $1,000 amounts every two weeks, um, you should be ported across because you're already in the ESTC system. David, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time again. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. David McDonald, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Looks like we've avoided an election because the NDP seems to be supporting this. But we still have to uh, vote on the bill and then debate it. Uh, Hopefully the Liberals are looking for a speedy passing of this bill. So that'll happen early next week. Uh, Toronto's executive committee has opted to pay $250,000 for consultations to rename Dundas Street. Now, you heard Andrew Lahey on the show uh, a couple of times. In fact, he's a guy who started a petition, started digging around um, during the early days of the pandemic to find out um, exactly who Henry Dundas was, which Dundas Street is named after the town of Dundas is named after him as well. And he started a petition to change the um, name of Dundas Street because he said that it supports anti-Black racism. We're finding out more and more as this story continues to develop about who Henry Dundas was. Um, And I'd like to welcome to the show Jennifer Dundas. She's a member of the Henry Dundas Committee for Public Education on Historical Scotland and a descendant of Henry Dundas. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Kelly. Okay, first of all, did you guys start this committee in order to educate people on who Henry Dundas was because of this um, petition that started and the talk around Dundas Street and the name change here in Toronto? The uh, It actually predates that because there was um, a similar controversy in Edinburgh, Scotland, 
over the Melville Monument, which was also a monument to uh, Henry Dundas. And so the um, basically the anti-Dundas campaign began there. And the current Viscount Melville, who holds Henry Dundas's title, he's a direct descendant, has been working on this for a number of years. And as um, after the uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, it, it took on a lot more attention. And, sure, and we, so we started to have conversations about it. So, Jennifer, when did you get involved in this? Did you, did you think to yourself uh, when you first heard, oh, wait a minute, wow, Henry Den- Dundas may not have been such a good guy. Uh, when you, you know, did you hear about it around the same time we did when Andrew Lougheed started digging around into your ancestors' history? And, and is that when you became involved in this committee or did you find out about it earlier on? I know that's that's exactly when it happened. Um, well, I didn't get involved in the committee right away because in the beginning, I actually had no reason to think that wasn't true. I actually, I just felt awful that my family name was associated with something so terrible. And so at first I did nothing except, you know, I really actually just uh, felt shame that our family could be associated with such a thing. And really it was among, it was in discussing this with family members that we thought, well, we need to respond um, and we need to find out, you know, exactly what it was happened. It so initially, I, I heard from my my producer Chris that you were when you heard about the accusations of him, um, you know, uh, being racist. You were horrified, and you wanted to do something like maybe even think of creating a scholarship for Black Canadians or help people learn about the slave trade. Um, but then you found out that those accusations might be not the full story. So why don't you give us your side of the story on what you learned about Henry Dundas and, and your, your uh, lineage. One of the, well, first of all, uh, the Dundas family from Southern Ontario is not descended from the same part of the clan. So we might be very, very distant cousins um, with our counterparts who are working on this issue in the UK. But um what I learned was that essentially, the essential facts are this. Henry Dundas always spoke in favor of abolition of slavery and the slave trade. And that's in comparison to William Wilberforce, who was the leader of the abolition movement, who was only seeking abolition of the slave trade. Henry Dundas stood up in the House in 1792 and was the very first MP in that parliament to say that we should be eradicating slavery and eliminating hereditary slavery so that children born to slaves would not become automatically slaves. That was super important to discover that. And then the other thing was I discovered every time there was a vote in the House around this, Henry Dundas would get up and he would say, we need to have a gradual process for this to work. He was a very experienced politician at this point, and he's saying immediate abolition simply will not succeed. Other countries will come in, and so we need something that actually works. And so if we do it gradually, then we can control it and we can make sure it happens. Uh, Two very important aspects. And and so that made me think that there's something wrong with the story that's being told. And uh, and that's when I started digging in even even more to doing some more research. Okay, so where do you sit right now, um, knowing what you know? I mean, you're hearing a lot about how, uh, especially when Black 
uh, history, where black history is concerned, there's a lot of missing parts to the puzzle. Like we aren't, you know, it wasn't recorded either. Uh, it wasn't written down. You're saying that this could be the case with Henry uh, Dundas. So is he um, unfairly being tarred and feathered? Uh, and what do you think we should do about Dundas Street? I think it is unfair, frankly. I mean, one of the things I've discovered is that behind closed doors, Henry Dundas was actually giving advice to the abolitionists. So in the, in the 1790s, he was telling them, um, you, should be, you should be going for abolition of slavery. And 30 years later, the Duke of Gloucester was telling the anti-slavery society, who still had made no progress, in the abolition of slavery, we should have listened to Henry Dundas. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Henry, he actually said in the minutes of that meeting, it shows Henry Dundas was right. And the luminaries of the abolition movement were there, including William Wilberforce. And the minutes were adopted unanimously. So I have a fair amount of confidence in that thing. So what should be done about... um, Dundas Street. Well, I think actually in some ways what's happened is the cart's been put before the horse. There have not been clear findings of fact around this. It appears to me that the the committee studying this for um, Toronto City Council has simply assumed that the allegations are correct and they're looking at options for addressing it. And as a a lawyer, I am a, a, a Crown prosecutor it seems backwards to me. It just seems like before you condemn this man and take action, you need to make some clear findings of fact about exactly what it is he's being condemned for. And one of the things I can tell you, too, is that he actually did have much more of an effect on Canada than people realize. Yeah, you so know, we talked about the, that quite a bit. We heard that he'd never set foot uh, here in Canada. What is his mark that, that was made here? That What effect did he have? So when John Simcoe was Lieutenant Governor in Upper Canada, he is recognized, of course, for having brought in abolition legislation. Henry Dundas was the Home Secretary responsible for British territories. He was the one who was giving Simcoe his marking orders when he arrived in Upper Canada. And so Simcoe was answerable to him. So Dundas had an influence even on the abolition legislation in Upper Canada. Uh, when the Americans were trying to push north, push the border north past the British posts in Upper Canada, he told the governor at the time, Governor Dorchester, make sure you secure land for, and he called them the Indian nations, um, that um, make sure you preserve their hunting, hunting grounds for them and other land that may enable them to live a comfortable life. Um, when there was a francophone um, uh, protest in the Legislative Assembly in Quebec City that they couldn't pass laws in French, Henry Dundas says, be, be bilingual, like pass your laws in English and French there. So and what you're saying is, is this guy was fairly progressive and he's being painted with the wrong brush right now for the sake of, and it's a very important conversation, anti-Black racism, you know. So uh, Andrew Lougheed, admittedly said he knew nothing about Henry Law, uh, uh, Henry Dundas when he started digging around and then started the petition. Do you think many people then 
are uh, rushing to judgment without getting all the facts. Yes, and, it, and you know, this isn't just coming from our committee. This is also something that was said by the leading, the most eminent historian in Scotland. He said there's been a rush to judgment here and that uh, this whole accusation of him prolonging the slave trade should be revisited. And that's what we're saying. I mean, we're, we're members of the Dundas family, and naturally people are going to be skeptical. So we have offered a considerable body of research for people to consider. We've posted it online with links to all of our sources so that people can go and look for themselves. That's what we want. Okay, to where, where can they find that? Uh, it's on medium.com. Uh, that's one of the places you can find it also on Twitter. Um, and um, yeah. A, a Did you talk to City Hall? Have you reached out to City Hall? And do you feel like your side got a, a fair shake? I feel actually, um, now that they've taken a look at our research, that they are taking us very seriously. And I'm really gratified about that. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for sharing your side of the story. I appreciate your time today on, on the show. We'll see what happens. Twenty uh, $250,000 is not jump change. It's a lot of money for a city that's right now cash-strapped, that they're investing into that, looking into uh, Dundas Street and the possible name change. So we'll see what happens. We certainly will be watching. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks for joining us. That's Jennifer Dundas, member of the Henry Dundas Committee for Public Education and Historical Scotland. So the story continues. All right, it's time to talk about uh, something that's a bit of a diversion, but it's also uh, a big passion in people's lives, music. Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list has been revamped. Now, this original list was published back in 2003, and it's popular. It's also polarizing. I think that's the case with art. And the music industry has evolved so much so that Rolling Stone said that, you know, it had a slight update in 2012, this list. The goal wasn't to update the list this time, but to blow it up and recreate it from scratch. And they wanted to reflect on both the canon of pop music and the ever-shifting currents of taste. You have to wonder if they got it right. Chris, at the uh, top spot, Marvin Gaye, um, is at the number one spot on the list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. And he knocked out the Beatles. So what are you hearing online before we go to Alan Cross? A lot of chatter about either that they've gone too woke or that they've not gone woke enough. So uh, I guess it depends on where you're sitting from uh, on or what position you're sitting at. It either looks like it's changed and gone really woke in PC or it looks like, well, all these artists speak English. They're being judgmental and at the risk of uh, using a pun here, we're going to Alan Cross to find out what's going on. Alan, there's a stink in the room after I threw that one out. H yeah, it... yeah, you had to go there, didn't you? I had to go there. I had to go there. Um, welcome to the show, Alan Cross from the Ongoing History of New Music and, of course, the Journal of Musical Things. So, Alan, the 500 greatest lists of all time, it, was it time for a revamp? And do you think this was actually... Uh, as they say, uh, a situation where they blew it up and recreated it. Well, they did. Under the 500 songs or 500 albums, 174 are brand new for this list. So, yeah, it's a it's a complete revamp. And I, I'm still not really sure what to make of it. There's a there's a lot that I, I, I like about it and what I don't like about it. Uh, in 2012, Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was named the greatest album of all time. Um it had been in that number one spot on a number of top lists for, for many, many years. 
and suddenly it was demoted to number, what, 23 or number 24. Meanwhile, the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds is at number two. And no, 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 no. It's a fine record, but it is not the second best album of all time. Yeah. A couple of things about this record, about this list. Number one is it's very American. Rolling Stone, uh, you know, has its roots in America, although they are now owned by a company based out of Singapore. But that's another story. And the the other issue here is that Rolling Stone has been uh, under stress, like a lot of other magazines. So what do you do to create some more chatter about your content as you put out a list that people will argue about, like we are doing right now? bringing more attention to Rolling Stone. And and there you go. The other thing that they have done, too, is is, is online, uh, with the exception of this particular feature, is almost everything's behind a paywall now. And uh, they're trying to convince people, lure people in to buy a seven, I think it's $7.99 a month subscription to read all of Rolling Stone. So, you know, let's take all these other things into account, too. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm noticing with this, and we'll just address the top 10, is, as you say, you know, they, they decided to do this and they're looking for new audience. But I think that they really, uh, in order to please the audience that they already have, uh, they've still stayed largely old white guy. Um, even though Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye are now in the top 10, when you look at the whole list as a complete they're, they still are largely old white guy. However, that said, there wasn't a lot of women in the music industry for a long time that were that were you know at par or at the same level. Maybe the opportunities weren't there. I'm quite happy about Lauren Hill entering the top ten. I think that miseducation of Lauren Hill definitely deserves to be in the top ten, and she is at the tenth spot. Bob Dylan, Blood on the Tracks at nine. Prince and the Revolution, Purple Rain at eight. I'm just going to run through the top ten here so everybody gets an idea. Fleetwood Mac, Rumors at seven. Nirvana's Nevermind, six. Uh, Beatles, Abbey Road is at five. Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life, four. Joni Mitchell, Blue, that's my head scratcher. And Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, two. Of course, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is the a top album in the 500 albums of all time. Joni Mitchell, Blue. I think that's um, a polarizing album. I mean, it, arguably, she's a fantastic songwriter, but eh, her voice is polarizing. It, it is. Joni, however, is is a musical treasure. People will go on and on and on about how important, how influential, how talented, how groundbreaking she was. Of, of all her albums, Blue is probably her biggest. Uh, it's not my favorite, but but it's probably her biggest. So, hey, listen, she's Canadian. She's from Saskatchewan. Let's, uh, let's go. Woohoo! Yeah. So we got uh, one Canadian in the top 10. That's great. Um, Marvin Gaye, again, a uh, polarizing pick. I. It's I, a I, mellow I, album. It, it is a is. mellow album. Uh, yeah. And again, this, you know, it, it, it's his protest record. So yeah. this, this is where I say, you know, it, it becomes a, a very – American sort of list because when he released that album, he made the shift from from the stuff he was doing with Motown to this this album that where he saw injustices happening in society and Vietnam War and civil rights movements and racism and all those things. So yeah, it's an important record and there's some very good music on it. The best of all time, again, you got to look at the metrics and, and how and the methodology. Of, of of how they pick these records, I, I I don't I don't get it. Now, if we can go to the Beatles again, yeah. Um, you know, I my favorite record 
for the Beatles is Abbey Road. Mm. However, if you go back into history and look at other people and how they've evaluated Beatles records over the years, um, Sergeant Pepper has consistently ranked higher than Abbey Road. And where is the Revolver album, which is probably, if you want to get right down to it, the best Beatles album because of its, uh, you know, its groundbreaking nature. It's, it's and the songs on that record. So how, how did that one get demoted to, to, to you know, so far down the list? And you're right when you talk about women. Um, for a long time, there, you know, women were given short shrift in the music industry, and a lot of them weren't given an opportunity to uh, show exactly what they could do and how talented they could be. So, yeah, that, that's yeah. a good thing. Um, but, yeah, because Beyonce's uh, now on, Erica Badu's on the list, Missy Elliott, Janet Jackson. Yeah. I mean, these people are deserving to be on the list. They sold a lot of albums. And, you know, how do you, if you're Rolling Stone, are you, um, are you voting uh, on, I know, you know, they send out the ballots to industry insiders and such, but are you voting on albums that appeal to the masses or are you voting on albums that appeal to you? Because then you get into a very different space where it's you like do. Picasso and Monet. And and that's very hard to definitively pick albums that were, you know, the best, the greatest, the 500 greatest of all time. How about rap? Is that represented enough on the uh, on the list? Because they keep saying, well, how can you get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if you're a rap artist? It's not the same. But yeah, here here's, we are. Here's the, here's the thing about rap. There, there are some some rap records on the on the list. However, in order to make such a list, you have to the album has to be quite old. It has to have proved its timelessness. It has to have proved its classic nature. So, you know, there's some some Drake that finished kind of high on the list that made me wonder because, no, it hasn't stood the test of time just yet. Mm -hmm. It might be a good record, but, you know, you, it, these things need to mellow. They need to marinate. They need to sit there in the public mind and public consciousness before people say, you know what? This is the best of all time, or among the best of all time. And and some of the rap, rap and hip-hop stuff has been creeping up. I mean, we have, you know, uh, Lauren Hill, like you said, in, in the top ten, which is which is good, and I agree with you on that record. Um, but, you know, let's let's see where everything sits in, in ten years. History is a moving target. Public mm -hmm. tastes are a moving target. We're always reevaluating stuff from the past in the context of the present. So are these the 500 greatest albums of all time? For some people, for today, yes. For others, no. All right. Alan, I want to, uh, tomorrow is uh, Record Store Day. It's the second of three that we're having this year in order to help out record stores that really need support. Do you think a lot of these albums on the 500 greatest list of all time will be flying off the shelf, especially in the top 10? Like, are we going to see people... Uh, just clamoring for Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? Well, now that you mention that uh, uh, that uh, uh, Record Store Day is tomorrow, this probably tells you a little bit about the timing of, of this record, um, or of, of this list, because um, you people are going to want these albums now. They're going to make a list, mm -hmm. of their, a shopping list, based on what uh, what's on this list. So... Um, yeah, I think they will. I know when I talk to my regular dealers, my regular uh, record dealers. I they, love uh, when you say dealers. I, it just conjures so much imagery. I know. Uh, they, they're always looking for classic albums to sell and resell. So um, with 
you know, an album like Rumors, for example, is in big demand by millennials and Gen Zs. And it's really hard to find a good copy, good used copy of Rumors because they're they're just everybody wants them. So, really? uh, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, when when my guy comes around, he says, hey, you know, you got a couple of copies of Rumors here. These are original copies and they're in good shape. You, you want to sell them? I go, no. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm keeping them. He says, you know, but, but, you know, the classics, ACDC's Back in Black and Nirvana's Nevermind and, um, you know, uh, Abbey Road, which is still the biggest selling vinyl record in the United States of all time. Uh, it's, it's, they're, they're, yeah, I think we're going to do well tomorrow with, with those records, especially since if you look at the, the new records that have. You still with me, Ellen? I think he might have hit mute on his. No, phone. no, here my my earbuds fell out. <laughs> okay, um, but how does that equate to your microphone? Oh, okay, it's attached. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so uh, where was I? Yeah, I, I I I'm looking at the the list for tomorrow. The uh, the the special editions that are out for tomorrow, and there's not a tremendous amount there that really gets me excited for record store day drop two. So I would imagine um, we're going to see a lot of people buying the classic records, which is great, right. um, you know, as long as they're in stock. And with that, you know, what you define as a classic depends on how old you are. I have to say one of my favorite albums has dumped off the uh, the 500 greatest list, and I can't believe they took it off. I don't know what it was replaced by, but Massive Attacks Mezzanine, gone. Ooh, that's what I would go out and look for in vinyl. That's not on the list? That's not on the list. Ooh, that dumped again. off. Okay, again, that shows the Americanness of this record because if you were to do this or this list, if you were to do this list in the, uh, in the UK, that would be in the top fifty, definitely. Well, that would be, and so would uh, Portishead's Dummy, and I'm not yeah. sure where that is on the list, if at all. But if I'm guessing that Massive Attack is off, then Portishead's Dummy's off. There's just so many genres of music that when you do a list like this, that are lo- left out, lost. You know, they're too niche, but they they're credible in their own in their own right. Yeah, I agree. So, anyway, Rolling Stone has succeeded in their mission to get us to argue about records, um, which, you know, when you come down to it, is a very good thing because anytime you get people talking more and more about music and evaluating music on its artistic merit, the better it is. The more people learn, the more people get involved, the more people take an emotional stake in it. I'm all for it. That's it for the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. Don't forget, we broadcast live Monday through Friday, 9 till noon on 640 Toronto Global News Radio.